Well, good morning. How was your Thanksgiving? I hope it was a uh, great blessing to you. I want to begin this morning with a question. Do you really matter? Do I really matter? We live in a world that has six billion people on this planet. How can one person really matter? One of 250 million people in this country alone. Do we really matter? And then we become Christians and we get involved in the church and we begin to wonder if we matter there. As one writer put it, to many Christians, the kingdom of God is like a professional football team owned by God and coached by Jesus. Each year, the owner and coach draft players, especially the prized blue chip Christians whose personalities, smarts, and looks will contribute to a championship team. To prepare for the season, Coach Jesus puts his players through rigorous training camps called Bible College or Seminary. The very best of these players get to play pastor, evangelist, and missionary. But what about the rest of them? What do they do? Well, they stand on the sideline or work in the office, doing whatever's necessary to keep the players in the game. They issue paychecks, keep team records, and maintain equipment. They cheer the players and distribute water and towels. But while they are part of the team, they are not the players. Their roles are important, but not most important. And the players are stars. While sideline people are, well, ordinary. I find that most Christians think that way. Those up front that are the real stars, they're the players in the Christian game. We're not. We sit in the pews and we don't really matter. But you know, that's not the perspective of the Scriptures. That's not the Lord's point of view. Today I want to look at a passage of Scripture that I think clearly shows us the importance of each individual life. We're all players in the kingdom of God. And no one in the entire kingdom of God, except Jesus himself, is more important than you. No one. No one is more important than you. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. We've been going through the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And in the first two chapters, we looked at how God is the creator. He created the entire universe. He created this world. He created the animals and the plants. And he created mankind, Adam and Eve. Placed them in the garden and blessed them richly. With the garden and with one another. That was Genesis 1 and 2. Then chapter 3, we saw how sin entered the world. Adam and Eve chose to walk away from God, and the result was devastating. And chapter 4 really reflects the consequences of that choice, of walking away from God. And last week, Chris talked about that, how Cain chose to kill his brother. And then in verse 16, chapter 4, it says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord chose to walk away from God. 
And down the line, generation after generation in the line of Cain became more and more corrupt and full of evil. At the end of chapter 4, there's a sense of sin is running rampant. Where is God? And we can feel that way today as we look around at our world around us. Sin is running rampant. And where is God? Where is he in all this? And then we get to chapter 5, a genealogy, where we see God moving in the hearts of men. And we see, really, the message that God is here. God is working in the midst of a sinful world. And he's working through individuals that will choose to walk with him. As I said, this is a genealogy, chapter 5. And I think many of us come to genealogies, we'll start reading through the scriptures, and we get to a list of genealogies, and we say, this is boring, what does this mean? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and on and on, and we get lost, and we flip the page and go on to something else. You know what, after studying this passage, I love genealogies. <laughs> And I think one reason they're there is because they show the importance of every single person. Do you realize when you have a genealogy that the whole thing falls apart if one person isn't there? My wife recently broke a chain, gold chain she has. And you know what? Every link in there is good, except one. But the chain's no good anymore. She can't, she can't wear it because one link is missing. Genealogies show the importance of every single individual. And we're going to see that today. I want to just highlight a couple of questions that often come up in here in this uh, genealogy in chapter 5. It's the line of Adam through Seth and on down the line, right through Noah, Noah. Ten generations. We won't take time to read the whole thing, but as you read through it, you begin to see some things that stand out. One is that people lived a long time. Methuselah is in this line. He lived longer than anyone else in the list. 969 years. How can that be? Well, I, let me give you a couple of reasons why I think that is, why they lived so much longer then. One is that they were still very close to the beginning. And therefore, sin had not permeated the gene pool like it has today. So therefore, people live longer. The genes hadn't become as corrupt as they are now. Another reason, I believe, is that there was a different climate then. As many have said, there apparently was a canopy over the whole world until the flood of Noah, which comes in the next chapter, chapter 6, 7 and 8. And this canopy was protective, kept out the UV rays and various things that contribute to the aging process, and therefore people lived much longer before that. But the reason we know for sure is that later on, God says, I will set the limits of man's life at, at the very most 120 years. And so God later changed the whole process. So I think that's why people live longer then. Another question that often comes up in a genealogy, and in particular this one is, as you look at it, you can add up the years. Adam lived so long, 
gave birth to Seth, lived longer and then died. And each one, you can add up the exact years from Adam, the first created man, to Noah. And then you can go on in Genesis and figure out the exact number of years from Noah on. And so people have done this and they figure, well, creation happened in 4004 B.C. That's been one of the estimates just from looking at the genealogies. Well, others have said, well, that can't be. Science tells us that the earth is much older than that, so it can't be true. So therefore, there must be huge gaps. I don't know what to do with it other than to say that Moses was pretty smart, and I don't think he meant for us to see gaps. <laughs> he could add up the years. He knew exactly what they came to. What does that mean about the age of the earth? I don't know. But I do know God's the creator, and that's the important thing. However old you think the earth is, or however you view the years in this genealogy, the point is God is the creator of man. And he's at work in the hearts of man. And what this genealogy teaches us more than anything else is that every individual is important. So let's look at that. Let's look at the power of one single life. And I want to give you four reasons from this genealogy as to why every single life is incredibly valuable and important. Let me begin with the first three verses of chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. And he blessed them and named them man, or Adam, in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. The author here reminds us of what happened back in chapter 1 and 2. That God created man in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And then it says, Adam had a son in his likeness, in his image. You see, the point is that now this image of God that was instilled in Adam is passed on to every one of his descendants. You see why one reason that every life is significant and valuable and important is that every one of us bear the very image of God, the likeness of God. And you may ask, what is that? image. What does it mean to bear the image of God? Uh, I think there's a couple aspects of it. One is that we're God's representatives. He's placed us on earth to submit to him as Lord. He's the king and we represent him. We stand in relationship to him to rule and have dominion over the earth that he created. But secondly, there's the word likeness there. Image and likeness both have this sense of looking like having the outline of, looking similar to. I have a 15-year-old son named Josh. People have told us that we look alike. Poor guy, but, you know. When you call us up on the phone, if one of us answers, it's pretty confusing to tell who is who because we sound alike. And even more unfortunate for him, we've been told that we act alike. <laughs> you see, he looks like me, not just physically, outwardly, but in other ways as well. And God is spirit. He's not physical like we are. But in similar ways, we look like him. God is a creative God. 
He created the universe. We cannot create something out of nothing, but we can be creative. Genesis 1 said, God said, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. As God within himself, let us make man in our image, is a trinity and has relationship. So we were created to have relationship in a way that animals cannot. We're created in God's image and we can care for one another and love one another and be involved in each other's lives and have intimacy with God, first of all, and with one another as well. And that's part of the image of God. We can do good. We can be kind. We can be generous. We have a mind and emotions and a will that can be used to do great good. And in that sense, we bear the image of God. We look like Him. And everyone bears that image, even unbelievers. And therefore, unbelievers can do very good things. Why? Because they bear the image of God. A Princess Diana and others, people that you know that seem better than many Christians. Why? Because they bear the image of God in them. The theological term for this is dignity. We are people with dignity because we bear his very image. Every person, no matter how evil, in some sense, deep down, bears the very mark of God, the very likeness of God upon their soul. And that makes us incredibly important and valuable. But secondly, we're important and valuable because every person not only bears the image of God, but we bear the image of Adam as well, the sin that was passed on. I want to read eight verses to you scattered throughout chapter 5, starting in verse 5. So all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11. All the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he, help me here, died. Verse 14. All the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. 17. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Verse 27. All the days of Methuselah were 969 years. Imagine living that long. And he died. In verse 31. All the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Notice the refrain of this chapter. They all lived, they had children, they lived longer, but they all died. You see, this contradicts the lie of Satan back in chapter 3, when the serpent is talking to Eve in verse 4. She says, she says in verse 3, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. Chapter 5 is absolute proof that God was right, Satan was wrong. We all die. We all bear the mark of Adam. You see, that image that was passed on is the image of God, but also that sin that was passed on to every one of us. Romans 5 says, that we all die 
because we all sin. And that we receive that directly from Adam. What this means is that everything we do is tainted with sin. No matter how good it is, yet sin taints everything. You can always find the image of God in it, but you can always find the sin as well that taints it. It's always tainted by selfishness, by independence from God. No matter what man does. We've made tremendous technological advancements. But it's always tainted somehow. We use it for selfish ends. We destroy the environment when we use it. We use it to oppress other people by hoarding and collecting for ourselves and hurting others. We've made incredible medical advances. And yet, what do we do with that? The state next to us, Oregon, just passed the law. The majority of voters in that state said, we want you to use your medical advances to kill people. Assisted suicide. Everything we do, we corrupt because we carry that sin in every one of us. We use it for selfish ends. When I help my wife, when I do dishes or pick up the vacuum and vacuum the floor and you know help her out around the house, is that a good thing? Yeah. She likes it sometimes, usually. <laughs> is it a bad thing? Yeah. <laughs> In the sense that it's tainted with my own selfishness. My motives are never pure on this earth. And therefore, I'm always doing it in some sense, maybe to get her off my back, <laughs> maybe to get something else from her that I want, maybe to avoid having to deal with a relationship that may be hard, so I'll just be active and do something. Who knows? But the point is that everything we do is tainted. By sin, And that's something we all bear, we all carry. Every one of us is a mixture of both dignity and, the theological term for this, depravity. Each of us is a person with a capacity to do great good or to do great harm. As Carl Sandburg put it, there is an eagle in me that wants to soar. And there's a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. <laughs> and it's true of each of us. What that means is what we do truly, truly matters. And that we need to think about how we're choosing to live. And that's my third reason as to why each person is important, is that each of us is important because we do have a choice either to move towards God or, or away from Him. To be a Cain, we read 4.16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Or to be a Seth, the end of the chapter, verse 26. And to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. You see, we have a choice to walk away from God or to begin to call upon his name. We have a choice to either be a Lamech or an Enoch. Listen to the description of those two. In chapter 4 again, the seventh in the line from Adam, in the line of Cain, verse 23 and 24 of chapter 4, 
This is the epitome of someone who has walked away from God. Listen to what it says. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounded me, wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. You see, Lamech is the epitome of a man living apart from God, violent, murderous, arrogant, boastful, immoral, uncaring. But in the other line, the line of Seth, the seventh in the line, living at the same time, as far as we know, as Lamech, we have Enoch. Look with me at verses 19 through 24 of chapter, or 18 through 24 of chapter 5. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. Both Lamech, chapter 4, and Enoch, chapter 5, lived about the same time. Both had the same ancestor. Both came from Adam. But their lives are very different. Enoch is the epitome of a man who walks with God. Same ancestor, but different results. And here Enoch is the only other man other than Elijah himself, 2 Kings 2, that never died, never had to face the consequences of sin because he walked so intimately with God that he was transported to heaven. As one little girl put it, she said, well, Enoch was walking with God and he'd walked and walked and walked and finally God said, you've walked so far, it's too far to go back. Why don't you just come home with me? <laughs> and so Enoch did. <laughs> and he never died. There's something special about Enoch because he walked with God. That phrase, walked with God, though we've heard it a lot, is only used of two men in the scriptures, and then it's used once in Malachi as a description of priests, the priesthood. But it's only used of two specific men, Enoch and his great-grandson Noah. Others, David, Abraham, walked before God, we're told. But only those two men walked with God. So that's pretty, pretty unique, pretty important. So what does it mean, then, to walk with God? To walk with God. I want to take that phrase apart. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, look at Genesis 6, 9, with the description of Noah. These are the generations of, the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Notice the description. He was blameless in his time. And then over in Malachi, the description of the priests. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence. 
So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. You see, walking with God means you're moving in the same direction. You and he are walking together, going the same way. And from these passages, it seems to me that walking involves two things, walking with God. First of all, it means having God's heart, the same heart as God, for righteousness. God had seen his perfectly created world utterly corrupted, and he'd seen the destruction and the death. And God longed for righteousness. He longed for people to be right. And I think that is part of walking with God, to have a heart, the same heart as God, for wanting to be right, wanting to do right before God, to please Him, to grow in Christ's likeness. And see, you can never say that, oh yeah, I'm close to God, we're walking, yeah, we're just like this, and not care deeply about being right and doing right before God. You can't. Because if you're close to God, you will always be drawn into his heart for righteousness and goodness, doing the right thing. But secondly, having walking with God, keeping in step with him, means having God's heart for others. We looked at that passage in Malachi and it says, True instruction was in his mouth. And he helped many turn away from iniquity. You see, if you're walking with God, moving in the same direction then you're going to have God's heart for other people. You're going to be concerned about what's happening in their lives. Walking with God is not a selfish, self-centered kind of thing. It's a thing where you're motivated to care for other people and love them and say, Lord, what are you doing in this person's life? How can I be involved in the process? How can I help them walk with you as well? That's what it means to walk, walk with God. But what does it mean to walk with God, to be with Him. I think it's really speaking of intimacy, walking close to. I have two ways that I shop with my wife. Many of you will be able to identify with this. (laughs) One way is when I'm on the hunt. I've got something in mind I'm after. I'm heading to a store to look for it. And... She's there somewhere. I look back. She's usually a couple steps behind me. She tends to grab my arm and try to keep me back with her. But I'm consumed by the hunt. I'm after my own agenda. I'm going my way. I'm doing my thing. And hopefully she's there. I look back every once in a while to make sure, you know, she's still somewhere in the vicinity. That's one way I shop with her. But I have another way I shop with my wife. And that's when I'm not consumed by bagging my prey in the next door. (laughs) But I'm there with her. I'm back with her, walking beside her. And my focus is on her, enjoying the time together. It's not important what we get or, or whatever, but it's being together, enjoying the relationship. And I think that's what it's describing when it says walking with God. Too often our relationship with God is us just marching off on our own agenda 
trying to do whatever we think we ought to do, making our own plans, doing our own thing. And every once in a while we'll look back and hope God's with us. (laughs) And he did promise to be with us, right? But you know what I think God's heart is saying to us? He says, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll follow along. I'll be with you. But oh, how I wish you were with me. That you were walking with me. That you weren't out for your own goals and your own plans and your own agendas, but you were walking with me. Walk with God. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, Enoch is mentioned in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, the same Enoch, in verse 5, and it says this, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Enoch is one of those great examples to us of a person who lived by faith by dependence. I think that's what walking with God is all about. It means that we are submissive to Him, that we let Him set our course, that we're trusting in Him to lead and guide instead of stepping out and saying, this is where I want to go, and Lord, I hope you're tagging along. It's very different the way I walk with my seven-year-old son than when I was his age walking with my dad. See, when I walked with my dad, he set the course, and I was glad to be with him. But I didn't always know where he was going or where he was headed or what the plan was. But I was tagging along with him. And now my seven-year-old does that with me. But I think to walk with God means that we tag along with him. That we're just glad to be holding his hand and Yeah, it's a little scary because you don't always know where he's going to take you. (laughs) But you're willing to walk with him and let him set the course. So the question is, in your life, are you walking with God? Or are you expecting him to walk with you? Your, Your decisions about your time and your money, what you do, where you go, are those laid at his feet and you say, well, Lord... I'm with you today. What do you have planned? I'm going with you. Yeah, I could do these other things. I could make my own plans. But Lord, today I'm going to go with you. I will walk with you. You see, that's what makes a life of true importance. That's what makes a life of impact, is whether you walk with him. It's not seminary degrees. It's not Bible knowledge. It's not any of that. It's being with him. The final reason from this genealogy I want to point out as to why each person is important is because of the impact we have on others. As I started out saying, every person in a genealogy is important. If you take one away, the whole genealogy falls apart. And it's interesting that if you read closely the genealogies in chapter 4 and the one in chapter 5, there's one Lamech in each line and one Enoch in each line. 
A godly Lamech and an ungodly Lamech. A godly Enoch and an ungodly Enoch. Very different. Part of it's because of their own choices. But part of it's because of the line they're in and the impact of their ancestors upon them. You'll never know on earth how important your choices are. One generation, two generations, ten generations down the line. The choices you make today, who knows what impact you're having, not just on your children, but on other people that you come in contact with. You can have an incredible impact by how you choose to live. Do you know who has recently chosen the most influential person in the 20th century? Adolf Hitler. He was a Lamic who chose evil. He was incredibly influential. Jonathan Edwards is considered the greatest theologian America has ever produced. Lived in the early 1700s. Had a lot of good writings and sermons and that still exist. Few people read them, not very many. But he had a wife, Sarah Edwards, who, while he was off writing and preaching, poured her life into, I forget how many kids they had, I think it was 12 or something like that, a bunch. <laughs> when I went to seminary, one of my classmates was John Edwards, direct descendant of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah. They've studied their genealogy over those ten generations. How many of the descendants of Jonathan Edwards became senators, uh, different influential people in society, powerful people who continued the godly line right up to John, who I went to school with. You never know the impact you're going to have on another life by how you choose to live, whether to walk with God or not. I'll give you another example. Edward Kimball was a businessman living in Boston more than 100 years ago. One day, a young man moved to town to work in his uncle's shoe store. He joined Kimball's Sunday school class, and Kimball often witnessed to him at the store. On April 21, 1855, the young man committed his life to Christ. Few people remember Edward Kimball. Almost everyone, however, is familiar with D.L. Moody. Thousands of people received Christ through his preaching. Thousands more as graduates of Moody Bible Institute have taken the gospel around the world. Yet it began with the simple faithfulness of an ordinary Christian, Edward Kimball. Your life is incredibly valuable and important. You have an impact on those around you. If your life wasn't valuable and important, Jesus would have never died for you on that cross. And now he says, what choice will you make? How will you live? Will you walk away from me? Or will you walk with me? You have a choice to walk with God or not. What impact will your life have? Will you be a Cain or a Seth, a Lamech or an Enoch? 
I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it in Weight of Glory, where he says, It is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Now listen to this sentence. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. Do you realize how important your life is? How important it is to choose to walk with Him. One thought I want to throw out. Where are you in the genealogy? Maybe you came from an ungodly family. And you're a Seth. You're the one who begins to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, praise God for you. Because the impact down the line will be amazing. So walk with God. Maybe you're an Enoch who's seventh in the line. And you come from a godly family. And you may feel at times that, oh, gee, you know, I just don't have much of a testimony. I uh, grew up in a Christian home. And, oh, praise God for your godly heritage. Let that spur you on to walk with God in the depth of an Enoch. Use your family blessing to spur you on. I want to end with a verse from the book of Acts. Chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to this. As they observed the confidence of Peter and John, the people around them as they're ministering, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. And the NIV says ordinary men. Peter and John were just ordinary men. The people were marveling at what they saw. And get this. They began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Your life counts. Make it count for God by walking with Him. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we, we are such a mixture of your image and of sin. But Lord, how incredible it is that you would want to use us to have an impact for good in the lives of others as we walk with you. Thank you, Lord, that our lives matter. Use us, Lord, to further your kingdom. Teach us, Lord, to walk with you, not according to our own agendas, but holding your hand, tagging along, excitedly looking for what you are doing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.